The Rufus Project would like to advise the following podcast contains spoilers for the 1978 feature film The Wiz. So if you're worried about a 37-year-old movie being spoiled for you, please go watch it before listening to the podcast. We followed the yellow brick road to a giant bank vault big enough to contain a set of traffic lights suspended between the Twin Towers so we could see if The Wiz from 1978 was redeemable. Could we redeem it? Find out after the theme. Good to be bad, so bad it's good. What's this movie? Do you think we should? Got bad I love dodgy creatures, but we want to know what the redeeming features. Hello and welcome to the Rufus Project Redeeming Features Cast. I probably should cut that down. My name's Trevor Holland, and I am joined by my good friend and co-host. Christian Fletcher. <laughs> I'm always waiting, Trevor, for the intro, and then I'm like, hang on, yes, I know the name. Yeah, <laughs> Thank perfect. you so much for being for, for having me along again because it's um it's always a, a privilege to be able to um talk talk some um trashy films or, or, or in some light in some people's eyes good films. So um thanks mm-hmm. for having me on the Rufus Project. Oh, absolutely, always good. So uh <laughs> yep, so this was one of the one of your suggestions, Christian. You you got me to watch uh, the Wiz from 1978, and it certainly was an experience. I'm probably happy to to reveal that at this stage. <laughs> well, it was definitely definitely a film that I had seen. Look, you know, I'll be honest; it probably would have been maybe my fifth time seeing the film overall in my life, and um, I think I think four of those screenings must have been before I really <laughs> realised what was going on. Um, and um, and so it was really great to be able to revisit the film. And um, as an adult, being able to look at it and, and for the purpose of this podcast in a totally new light and, and, and being able to sort of essentially analyse it. So, Trevor, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts about the film because it's a movie I've always known about, always, you know, it, you know, being a movie musical essentially, but it's never really been a chance for me to sit down and really look at it in, in depth for the mm-hmm. um, for the reason of redeeming it. So yeah. let's see if it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we, we move on to that, probably better start with the business sides of things and uh, get into a bit of turkey trivia. Uh, so that's where we talk about the facts and figures and some uh, interesting tidbits, I suppose, about the movie itself. First up, it's rated 5.2 out of 10 on IMDb, which, uh, as I always say, anything above 5 is quite high for for a redeeming features movie. Whether or not we feel it's worth it, I guess that will will, will uh, come through. Uh, but just looking at it, it was actually shot on a budget of $24 million, and it grossed a grand total of $13 million. Now, this is off the back of a hit Broadway musical, so... Uh, not the most uh, glowing performance from this movie, and I, I believe I, I believe in my research. I think subsequently it made another ten million. Thankfully for for Universal, it made another ten million in um in in rentals. So it's still it's still even with that, you know, you, you're barely getting your twenty four million back. And um and yeah, as you're saying, Trevor, coming straight off a hit musical, you know, a, a hit Broadway musical that is then going to have Diana Ross, um, names like Michael Jackson eventually. Um, you've got um, Quincy Jones, who's so well known for his work in the 70s um, in, in Motown. 
and having all these big names and you think, how can something go wrong? But uh, essentially it, it did, didn't it? <laughs> mm. You you did mention the budget there of being um, $24 million. Now, I know um, over the years I've always, I don't know if it's been things I've read about, but I've always heard that it was one of the most expensive movie musicals of all time. I, I believe that would have, I believe $24 million would have been surpassed by you know, something like hairspray, even <laughs> I don't know. So, but um, but to look at that and and to see a film that has had bombed so much, but had so much good going for it, it, it is really interesting to see how did it all go wrong. And um and um in 1978 when it became a a movie musical, we we soon found out. <laughs> well, definitely. I mean, seriously, that 24 million for for a musical in, in 1978 that would have been a massive budget at the time. And essentially a movie musical that is adapted from something that is probably one of the most colourful films of all time. You know, and whilst, you know, The Wizard of Oz, a lot of people, you know, whilst we think of the 1939 movie, way before then, you know, in the early 1900s, there were stage adaptations. You know, L. L. Frank Baum's books have been adapted, you know, so many times. So the story is essentially not new. So to take it into the whole world of of essentially, I suppose, a black exploitation film, which it it is often categorised as... And, you know, the original stage production featured an all-African-American cast. So it sort of took on board, I don't know if I'm using the word correctly, but the sort of the the urban feel of the story. And and I think, like, I have seen stage productions of of the musical before, and it does, yeah, it retains a lot of that kind of that cool, funky sort of sound. So it very much is a 70s work. And you think that this would translate very much into the movie by having that kind of 70s funk feel, but also kind of, I don't know, I'm paying homage to the 30s film, but it, it really kind of... I think it lost it in translation, and it makes you do makes you wonder if maybe it, it doesn't lend itself to being a, a film. Yeah, we'll certainly cover that um, as we go through, I guess. Um, I may have a few notes covering some of those aspects coming up, uh, but uh, we've talked turkey, so uh, I'm just wondering with uh, the trivia about the turkey. Did you have any tidbits that uh, that you found? Well, it was really interesting. Uh, this movie, a lot of people say the failure of this movie rests on Diana Ross's shoulders, and you know, and, and it, you know, she is such a big part of the film, being Dorothy, and um, and um, I, I have heard stories about her being quite a a very dominating figure in the music scene, let's just say, and probably quite hard to work with. So she would have essentially um, lampooned to play this part or champion to play this part, and then once she came on board, was was adamant about Michael Jackson coming on board. And I think actually Michael Jackson, this you know, this essentially was his only film role, and I think that really brought The Wiz to a whole new level that it would never have been before. I think it would have just even been even less of a of a, of a pop culture movie than um, that it is today. We're thinking thinking about it being made at the height of disco, and that very much um, permeates in so much of the film. Mm. But, you know, um, Diana Ross playing a part that we're so used to someone being 15, you know, that's what we're so used to Dorothy being in the MGM film. Stephanie Mills had played it on Broadway, apparently as a young girl or as a teenager. So you've got Diana Ross playing a 24-year-old, which I believe comes out in the script, which was changed from the stage show. They actually... Joel Schumacher, who's actually a, a well-known name nowadays, he actually adapted the screenplay. I mean, adapted the musical, cut out all of the dialogue, pretty much wrote a whole new screenplay. So you've got a 24-year-old Dorothy in this version that is played by a 34-year-old Diana Ross. So a lot of people have always put the um, the failure of the film on Diana Ross's shoulders, even though I believe there's so much more wrong with it. But, yeah, what are your thoughts, Trevor? I, I definitely don't think she was the leading lady for this project 
Well, yeah, apparently, I mean, amongst the trivia that I found leading into that was that uh, Stephanie Mills, when when the movie adaptation was originally being talked about, um, they they were intent on and having her reprise her her role um, within the movie from the stage show, uh, but Diana Ross pulled the card that she could get Michael Jackson in to in order to to get her cast as Dorothy and, and subsequently have the 13-year-old Dorothy character change to the 24-year-old kindergarten teacher. Um, I, I don't know if it was Karma or something come back to it, but I uh, also read that uh, according to um, an unauthorised biography of Diana Ross, uh, was that uh, during the filming she was hospitalised after being nearly blinded by a lighting effect within the movie. So maybe a little bit of, uh, a little bit of Karma there, a bit of turnaround. <laughs> you'd never know but but like you you know it seems like you know you've got ross and like you know she gets so look in, in a lot of the over the years when i've read so much about this movie she just gets lumped with 99 percent of the reasons for the problems but i actually want to point the fing- finger at sydney lumet who um is best known for films such as network i can't even think of the other films off the top of my head oh yeah, much- you had like a what a 60 odd year career directing movies yeah, exactly. But I can't think of, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of Network, but I um, I, I think choosing someone like Sidney Lumet and, and choosing it, especially in the musical genre, I think don't think you should ever have someone tackle a musical that doesn't know how to film a musical. And so essentially what you're seeing is a drama with music, I suppose is probably the best way of, of um, interpreting it. And I noticed this a lot when I watched it recently. You know, when you're watching musicals now, and or even musicals from the heyday, you're seeing a lot of a lot of um, close-ups, a lot of um, quick flashes, and things like that. And um, and Sydney Lumet does not cut away much at all. You're seeing, you're seeing a lot of very detailed costumes, but well, actually, you're not seeing them because he never cuts away. There's a lot of scenes where he just likes to film the entire scene without ever sort of showing close-ups. And and I feel that that kind of made it a non-musical essentially or a drama with songs, like I said. Mm. So I think he was the wrong director at the helm for this piece. Yeah. Again, while well, the original director um, John Badham uh, apparently was fired when he objected to Diana Ross coming in, <laughs> and I think I think uh, from memory John Badham did Saturday Night Fever. So even even he at least knew how to do some kind of musical numbers, mm. even if it would still feel very seventies. But there were so many times, Trevor, like especially in the film, the scenes when they go into the poppy den and and all these other things where it just was it, it felt. So seventies, you almost felt like the hints of like Xanadu and can't stop the music in it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it tried so yeah. and even if it had got to that stage as a disco piece, it still could have been much more enjoyable. But under Sidney Lumet's direction, it just fell so flat. It, it wasn't flashy. You weren't seeing that twenty four million on screen. Mm, well, before you, before you're you're getting right into this, but um, oh, a I couple am. of other right. points. <laughs> so um, rein me in. Uh, I, th- I think we're, we're giving some of it away uh, as to how we felt about it, but we'll start with, uh, I suppose, the bottom of the barrel and uh, start with a one-star review from Amazon that I think encapsulates a lot of what these reviews are, are, are saying. So with this one simply called The Wiz, um, we have this person saying, I would give this movie a negative star rating. My daughter had her classmates over to watch the movie because their school is performing the play. When it was on Broadway, it won about 10 Tony Awards. The movie was worse than horrible. We all found it racist, stereotyping black people, and extremely painful to watch. Not because of the material, but the way it was acted and portrayed. I apologise to all the parents for wasting their kids' brain cells. 
The kids did not like it, but said they would finish watching it. I offered another movie about 45 minutes into this one, which is 2 hours and 15 minutes. The music was fine, but the visuals detracted from its enjoyment. So, do you think that is being harsh for a one-star review, or uh, is fairly accurate? I think that's fairly accurate, Trevor. It's actually reminded me about a lot of the things like the, the racial stereotypes, which is quite unusual considering it was made by Motown Productions, that, that they would, you know, that a lot of things would come off like that, the stereotypes. But, yeah, I can see a lot of things. And I can see children not finding this interesting. Like, I do not see this as a movie for kids. <laughs> No. Well, first of all, I mean, that, that was the first thing I noticed because I had a, a cheeky peek at the running time when I started watching it. And the first thing I thought was, this goes for like two hours, <laughs> which oh, immediately made me go, um, I'm making quite a commitment here to something I'm not too sure about. <laughs> I know even Trevor, when I picked it, I even thought, oh gosh, we're normally getting the one hour and a half feeling. And I, But I actually think this film could have lended itself to being majorly chopped up, And you, but you do wonder if, as an hour and a half film, it still would have felt like it did. I don't know. I, um, I, I feel it was definitely too long, but, you know, adapting the stage musical, which obviously stage musicals do have a lot of songs, but I think from memory they've even added songs and it just felt like every second Diana Ross was singing some boring song. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, well, it starts with that opening with, uh, with the family coming together. Uh, I think they're celebrating some random relation. Maybe a christening or... Maybe a christening, something like that. I I couldn't (laughs) couldn't quite get it, but it's all about family, and it went on and on and on, and then Diana Ross, who, through the majority of this movie, looks, like, surprised in some way. She she never seems to portray any sort of confidence through the vast majority of this, and she goes off to have a little solo in the kitchen, and it just... Her first solo is just... uh, rather depressing (laughs) yeah she gets very depressing and is very very somber which added to the again the the length of that solo song yeah the opening of this movie doesn't really inspire confidence well remembering having seen the stage show like as i said they changed a lot of the, the whole screenplay the stage show you know has dorothy on the farm singing you know can i go on not knowing or whatever the song is and um and the, and the, and the Annie M singing the feeling that we had but yeah in this translation it becomes quite where is this going it, it, it yeah it's um it's the fact that you've got one song that goes on forever going into another song that feels like it's going on forever. You just, you, you're waiting for the tornado to approach essentially mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um... and, and get Dorothy out of this existence. But I don't know if it was just in the translation of, of um, the screenplay, but, but um, you know, it's just Diana Ross seems like almost this, this woman child. It's never really as a 24 year old. She's, I don't know if she's just been, I don't know, the servant for her parents, but she's never really experienced life. She's been a kindergarten teacher, but who's never really experienced life past her neighbourhood. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and there's quite a, of, oh, sorry, the, yeah, there's quite a setup for that at the start too, when she's talking to her Auntie M and Auntie M saying, you've got to get out there and get this job as a high school teacher and get out of the neighbourhood and experience life. And, and, um, this huge focus on that at the very, very start of this movie, which I suppose I'll get to it a bit later on, but it doesn't really 
pay off in any way whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, well, like uh, you're probably thinking the same as me, Trevor. Let's just say you think that she'd come back to Kansas or wherever this is supposed to be set, New York City, and resolve these situations, but we never quite get there. It very much feels like filler at the start. They're trying to give her somewhat of a character, but I think it... I don't know, in, in many ways it only really hi- um, highlights that Dorothy is quite kind of non-dependent, I mean, is dependent, sorry, and quite non-capable of being uh, on her own. And I think that probably might explain Diana Ross's quite emotional performance throughout. When I say emotional, she always seems to be in tears or screaming at something or, or shocked, like you said, or surprised. So I don't know if that was kind of her angle she was going at, but no, it, it, she was an odd character to start with. Yeah, I never warmed to the Dorothy character at any point in this entire movie. Oh, and it the, just the few moments, the few, there's just a few fleeting moments where she does get to be a bit more animated, or or does get to sing a song that's a bit more lively, and and then it's kind of like, okay, yeah, yeah, but then they quickly cut it back to another, well, basically boring, depressing solo. It's it's a very regular pattern, and considering the length of the songs in this movie, either the new ones added or I'm thinking that um, even the ones that do come from the stage show uh, are padded out to allow the ludicrous amount of backup dancers that come in to a lot of the big set pieces to, you know, to have their moment or moments or hour um, worth probably all up of the movie is is watching the, the various dancers run around and do massive choreographed dance scenes. Oh gosh! Well, you, well, you've got you know I don't know if I'm going ahead of myself, but you've got a, a, an Emerald City scene. You know, obviously the big the oh. big um, you know, you've got this Emerald City scene that essentially okay, it, it's filmed in the in the bottom of the the, the the then Twin Towers. So you've got this quite I think it's like a plaza, the, the plaza that's beneath there that was quite huge. And so I think the big I, I honestly believe the whole, most of the budget probably went to this. Apparently, even though um, Sydney LeMay has not directed us for actually to see any of the costuming. But um, you've got this huge, you know, this Emerald City scene that just seems to go on, Trevor, for like 15, 20 minutes. And they, they don't just go through from, okay, you're in an Emerald City. They have to change to red and yellow and all these unusual different colours, almost to, um, okay, little little Mary Mary Jane there over in the corner. She needs to have her solo in this song, so <laughs> mm. let's do it. So, yeah, that went on for way too long. Yeah, uh, I mean, just scan through my notes. I mean, I probably, I'll, I'll, I'll say this now so I don't keep repeating myself. Nearly every single song in this movie goes too long. And you're watching it, you can easily see where a lot of this could just have been. They could have just cut a little bit here and there, made everything move on at a, at a faster pace, um, with, you know, more impact from these songs. But they just, you know, there's this obsession with trying to squeeze every bit of emotion from every single song. And yeah, it just makes them over, over long and overbearing. Yeah, there were times when I'm thinking that, um, like when Dorothy does get taken up by the really wonderful snow tornado effect, <laughs> which I guess was 1978. I, I, I won't judge it too harshly. Uh, but even in that very first piece where uh, the graffiti comes to life in a way even more disturbing than it did in Xanadu. Oh, my and, God. And, so it's, and it's shot so darkly, that scene. It's mm-hmm. so 
so creepy. <laughs> and it goes on and on and on and on and on, and the good witch comes down, and she says, I can tell you what to do, child! Sorry for the horrible <laughs> racist stereotype there, guys, but this movie is full of racist stereotypes, okay? Um, and from that very moment, and then they do another dance number, and then there's more singing in the dance number, I just thought Dorothy would go, will you stop singing and dancing and just tell me where the hell I need to go? Exactly. I just so many times it would have just been Dorothy should have just gone. She's seemed so desperate to get home, but she's more than happy to sit back and watch these overblown dance numbers. Well, the scary thing is, Trevor, I actually found in my collection I have the Wiz on LP soundtrack, and surprisingly, it's a double LP. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm surprised it's not more, to be honest. But uh, but for those people that do um, end up watching The Wiz, I, I think an important thing to say is um, Sidney Lumet has made the decision to make Oz essentially New York City. So I did find it hard to sort of fathom, like, as a concept, okay, interesting, you're turning places like the Brooklyn Bridge into the Yellow Brick Road and, you know, as I said, the, the Trade Centre into the Emerald City. So as a creative way, I, I saw this could have really worked. But I was always wondering the whole time, isn't Oz or well, isn't New York City technically just up the road from where Dorothy lived? So that always kind of it, – it was really hard to sort of differentiate between what we're used to, Kansas and Oz, you know, in, in this sort of way. But I don't know, LeMay seemed to be doing this film as a, a bit of a tribute to New York because he tried to throw in as many New York-isms as he possibly could, not just in um, scenery but in um, in a lot of set pieces and um, the props as well like that. I, I found that it was kind of like, okay, Sydney, we, we know you're in New York. <laughs> but there, I think with Sydney LeMay, one of his defining features was that he he – he really was into featuring New York in, into the, in the vast majority of his work. So once he was on board, I guess, what else could they expect? Yeah. And he, like, there's been some really, there were some really clever decisions. Like there was a lot of shots where I looked at and went, wow, how did they close, not close New York, but how did they close off that area of the town to film that? But then you did look a lot closely and I could see a lot of, um, I suppose, mat work or, or stuff where you could tell it was, superimposed in the background but they did a pretty good job of um i suppose shutting down new york or, or giving that feel of i suppose a, a rundown new york city mm-hmm. i think there were a few also where where they did like recreate some areas of new york on a sound stage just to um you know just to make things a bit easier um i think when the when the lion turns up, it's, it's meant to be one of the lions outside the New York Library, but it, it seems pretty obvious that that itself is a, is a soundstage. And again, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to pick on, I suppose, the visuals and effects, because again, it was 1978, so I've got to try to keep oh, that yeah. in my mind. <laughs> and like, you know, and he has created some really great set pieces, as I've said, you know, and there's, you know, like, and, and for those people that didn't get the memo about it being a New York orientated film, there's even the part when the sun rises and it's a big Big Apple. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I went, uh, <laughs> so that was, that's for the people in the back row that hadn't got that yet. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting choice, considering also day didn't last very long, did it? It kind of rose, went across the sky, and went down again. But it was it also, but it did um, for someone who's a huge fan of the original Wizard of Oz. It was kind of cool seeing parts that you'd never thought of before, of then going to a hotel, you know, the night before they go and kill the witch, you know, <laughs> things they never like sort of touch on. You it's sort of these more human sort of elements. But I mm. uh, I just felt that he, you know, whilst filming in New York, he sort of picked almost the most mundane parts of New York. Like there was just there was a real severe lack of color, and I I don't know if that was 
an intentional thing almost to show that Oz was, you know, not necessarily a good place because it was overrun by wicked witches and flying monkeys and all this sort of stuff. So I don't know. I don't know how we should interpret that. Yeah, I suppose with it being, because, I mean, there was also seems to be a lot of stuff that was just set up in areas where stuff had been demolished. Um, I think part of it was to try to make things like the Yellow Brick Road, and I suppose when they get to the Emerald City and they're singing all about the different colours they have to wear, even <laughs> though that was still a very dark, dull scene, even though it was meant oh, to be all colourful. Yeah. But I think the intent was, like, those more fantastical elements should have st- stood out more uh, against, say, your your normal New York skyline. But this is all, I think, coming back to, to his directing because, yeah, you've got that um, Emerald City scene and there's just, you know, a big shot of dancers, but very rarely does he cut in and show the emotion and, and, and the flashiness that you, that you come to expect, I suppose, from a musical number. So that was always the really hard. I did actually watch the movie with a friend, actually, and that kept commenting to me, oh, there's no, they haven't differentiated between where she lives and this world that she's been transported to. It just felt like she'd... I don't know, caught a, <laughs> caught a snowstorm up the road a couple of minutes. Yeah, oh, she got out of the neighbourhood. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think, you know, like, in, not to go too far ahead of myself, but I think that's essentially what you need to look at this movie as. I think that's probably the interpretation, because I think, I'm, I'm not sure what the mum exactly says, but something like Dorothy's never ventured past 34th Street or, or something along those lines, because she's always lived with um, lived around there. And I think Oz is supposed to represent a part of New York that she's never actually seen before. I think that's probably the best way to interpret it. But that might even be me looking too deeply into it. Mm. I mean, uh, I've got to... Okay, well, let's just jump around. Fair enough. I mean, I, I thought... I, yeah, like I said, I thought that after, after the big setup. I thought there was this big, you know, coming home and going, oh, yes, I have now grown as a person and I will now move on and spread my wings instead of her just walking through the snow and going through the front door at the end. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah. but yeah, I suppose with your interpretation, which actually didn't occur to me, it does actually make a bit more sense that way in, in that um, she, she may be concussed and delusional from chasing Toto out into a snowstorm Oh, gee, remind me, I will have to come back to Toto. He's certainly uh, an interesting addition. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, and, and is having some sort of weird hallucinogenic tour of the city and um, apparently murdering witches at some point as well. Yeah, and being taken to opium dens with, dens with three strange men. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very strange oh. men. <laughs> we we are. We, we're going to talk about them, aren't we? <laughs> Oh yes, of course. Well, I, I don't know. Well, I don't know if we want to move on to that bit next, Trevor. Then while we while we think of it, because I've got a few different notes here too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, um, aside from the whole crow song being incredibly uncomfortable when you look at the history of race relations within America, um, our first shot of Michael Jackson as as a scarecrow that makeup to me looks like he was worried about his constipation. <laughs> There's something about wearing a Pereira Rocher wrapper on your nose that kind of does that, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, and he had like these these like baggy things under his chin. It just looked like he when whenever he was at rest, which was a lot for a lot of the movie, he was just staring blankly at what was going on when he wasn't actually performing. Uh, and and yeah, he just looked really worried and well, yeah, backed up. And this this bizarre knitted jumper that he's wearing that seems to have like a coat hanger coming out of the back. I didn't quite get. That. I don't know if that was supposed to 
be something that ties him to the to the pole, which interestingly, as a scarecrow, he pretty much just seems to be resting his arms in there. He could have let his arms go at any time. <laughs> oh, but no, no, he, he had to get the crow's permission. And like, you know, I, I must admit, a lot of people have said that Michael Jackson, out of all the performances, has probably got the most heart, you know, or excuse the pun, actually, no, it'd be brain, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, and you do sort of, you, you see that sensitive side of Michael Jackson, sort of before he became, I suppose, the joke or whatever a lot of people have sort of made him. This was kind of in a pre, before a lot of things started happening in the 80s to him. Mm-hmm, yeah, well, he was a very, yeah, when he first started out, he was like a very uh, innocent-seeming uh, performer. Uh, it was only, you know, much later when the whole Wacko Jacko thing came in and, and now that's what everyone remembers. But, uh, yeah, he's in his early career, uh, once he got out of the ja- um, once he was no longer the Jackson Five kid, you know, he he really did make a name as this very almost uh, pure um, singer with this amazing voice, which you know makes what happened to him later just a bit more tragic. And I think that it, you can see elements of this, even though he's underneath his scarecrow costume. I think you can see so much of this, his emotion and his potential coming through in 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 the role he plays. So you're pretty much seeing an off the wall. When I say off the wall, I mean the album, not not Wacko Jacko. But you're seeing an off the wall era um, Michael Jackson. And and as I said, the only motion picture that I, I suppose he was ever in. So I think that's what gives the Wiz a bit bit of something special that it would never have had. So I really think that even though we might Poo poo, um, Diana Ross's appearance. If, she, if we hadn't got her, we wouldn't have got Michael. <laughs> so it was kind of one of those those um, double edged swords there. But yeah, I do know what you mean with the um, with the crows and things like that. But we've got to come back to it. This was made by Motown, so it's like they've gone. Let's just pick the racial stereotypes because the mainstream audiences that might that will come and see this will it will appeal to them. I don't know. It's it's an interesting interesting that they've done that. Yeah. Yep, and then um, I think the next one that turns up is is Nipsey Russell as the Tin Man, and I don't know for some reason I found, I mean, when the Tin Man was first introduced and his introducing song and his introducing character, uh, I found him actually the the more interesting of the three companions and and almost the more fun. Briefly, um, it, it did go away a bit later on <laughs> with, with the later rather bizarre. Uh, scenes involving the Tin Man crying on people to wake them back up again. Oh uh, yes, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, he he probably got the smallest, uh, I suppose, introduction <laughs> out of the lot of them, and uh, maybe that's why it seemed that much more appealing because it was one of the few things that was actually kept fairly concise and and you know wasn't just dragged out to the the point of uselessness. But they still managed to. But they still managed to milk two songs out of his appearance, though, which I was pretty. I thought, oh, of course, the Wiz would manage to do this. <laughs> but at least they were fun songs, and yeah, and I think being the the whole idea, you're kind of getting the feeling that he used to be an old um, fairground barker, and um, you know, because it's all set in the old Coney Island. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I believe it was actually. I think I read that it was actually filmed in something a ride that had just been closed down recently. So what you're seeing is, you know, an actual the actual destruction of that. But, um, the the but, yeah, yellow brick he, roller coaster, I think. I know that that's... <laughs> <laughs> you, you've got a good idea there. Movie World should put that in. <laughs> but um, 
but yeah, so I think they they managed to use that a lot. And you've got his little top hat and cane, did a bit of a tap dance and stuff like that. So yeah, they they were able to utilize that kind of thing. And yeah, as you said, you know, excuse the pun, but he actually had was the character one of the characters that had the most sort of heart, which is kind mm-hmm. of ironic considering yeah. the um <laughs> the whole the whole premise of the film. Yeah, pity but it was then brought the down <laughs> again by the yeah pity it was then brought down again by the next Dorothy song. Uh, bring oh it back yeah, down of course. The... I think it's. It seems like you know how when in the original Wizard of Oz you had to. Well, there's uh, admittedly there's this ca- very catchy song called "Ease on Down the Road," which, is, which ended up being released as a um, a seven inch single and became mm-hmm. a big sort of Motown hit in the late seventies. So that, that's the song, I suppose. That the equivalent of um, "Follow the Yellow Brick Road." Yep. Um, Oh, sorry, we're off to see the wizard. So, you know, like in the original film, how um, after every, after she meets everybody, they have to sing their number and then they have to sing a reprise of that. So pretty much we've got this, but it seems like every character seems to get like another extra song as well. And it seems to always be Dorothy pulling them aside to sort of motivate them again. But the way it's shot, it's really just Diana Ross doing a whole lot of crying. (laughs) Yeah, uh, there's a pattern I noticed. There was something cheery. Uh, Whenever there was something cheery, they made sure it was followed up by Diana Ross singing another sombre, dull, sad Dorothy song. (laughs) But then, you know, as I said, look, I don't know if this is also a fault of the original musical. Like, I have seen the stage show. I wasn't that blown away by it when I saw it. It was a local production. But I I never felt anything like I did from this film. Like, I still felt I enjoyed the songs of of the stage show. So I I think it's a lot to do with how it's been made and, um, and adding, as we said, those extra songs in. But... Really refreshing. I'm glad he comes along when he does, but um, Ted Ross playing the lion. It seems oh, to be... God! Oh, <laughs> I could not what stand is it about him. The, cow- the, cowardly, the cowardly lion <laughs> in history. I'm probably only thinking of Burt Lair from the 39 film and Ted Ross. They always seem to be the... the they have to be the most... Um, the, they have to be very camp. It just seems to be <laughs> a going yeah. thing with, with the lion. It seemed like he was channeling a lot of his character with that as well. Yeah, uh, but... Still, I I found the line the most annoying of the three, uh, especially I don't know. It was kind of bizarre because there's something as, as cowardly, you know, he he wants to find his bravery, and then there's that very surreal subway sequence. Oh God, Trevor! Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, I basically summarized it. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Basically, subway scene <laughs> yeah yeah so uh where all sorts of things come to life now how did i i actually noted it down i've lost it in my note oh dear um so yeah killish rubbish bin power boxes and pillars oh my <laughs> <laughs> so well because I, I suppose we've oh yeah because we've actually gone post so this is this is pre I'm thinking of the original movie. We're thinking pre Poppy Field, post Sing the Lion. They've got this, yeah, essentially one of the scariest scenes I've ever seen in a film, actually. Mm-hmm. And, I, and a lot of reviews I've read said this petrified their children, and even as kids, this scared the hell out of them. And, and I think, Trevor, if this scene was removed, I think it would actually elevate this movie to a little bit better. I've always said this one scene just takes it to pure ridiculousness that it could never quite recover from. Yeah, and then you you have the the lion getting. I mean, the, essentially, the lion comes in and saves everyone from these ridiculous threats of rubbish bin with teeth and <laughs> wires coming from power boxes and Dorothy being chased by subway pillars with with legs. And then you go to the next scene where they'll get knocked out, which I guess is the poppy field poppy field one. And because the lion couldn't save them from that, he then goes and decides to be suicidal. 
and oh. Dor- and and ironically, Dorothy sings him a depressing song, which stops him being suicidal. But at that point, I just figured I have had enough of the lion, and if the lion doesn't say anything else, I'll be more than happy. He said and, more, and, so yeah. Oh, but as you're as you're referring to that scene there, Trevor, I'm flashing back to the review that you read out at the start, and those, that lady's children watching that particular scene, <laughs> and I even have that in my notes here. Lion attempts suicide. So yeah, essentially, uh, yeah, um, Diana Ross talks him down from suicide by singing a, a mundane song. That's <laughs> her tense for the last half an hour. But yeah, that it just seems to be from the subway, even though it's been bizarre up to then. The subway scene just it can never quite get back from it and i don't know there's something kind of creepy about those pink things that that guy has there's this i don't know what you'd what we'd call him a peddler i don't know what his name would be mm. but he seems to be um you know sort of um throughout the whole you know you're seeing him in the background of things you even notice him early on in the um in the scarecrow scene and he's got these very giant um pink pink things that end up becoming life-size and chasing them down the subway and i think that's the stuff nightmares are made of yeah i think what that I just gave up. <laughs> but like, what is going through the minds of the people? And, and, and like, and then thinking back again, this is an adaptation of a hit Broadway musical, and and you're scratching your head. And I know for a fact that scene is definitely not the stage show. <laughs> no, no, I, I think that was definitely a, a movie embellishment that does not work. I did, as I said, I watched it with a friend of mine, and during this, well, we, you know, our jaws were on the ground. My friend goes, oh, yeah, but, you know, I said, oh, what a ridiculous scene. And my friend goes, oh, yeah, but they need to have this scene. And I was like, what? I said, to show that the, to, to, to give a chance for the lion to show off his courage a little bit more, because there's, you know, him trying to rescue Dorothy. But I'm thinking, yeah, it, that is a good point, but I'm thinking, yeah, it, it didn't need to go to, to the um <laughs> the odd levels that it did. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just shaking my head thinking of it. Exactly. And, um, so yeah, so you can imagine when I suggested, so when I revisited this film and, and then having enjoyed it as a kid, but I still, I think I always thought it was a bit odd. But I was, I always thought it was odd and a bit long. But having re, you know, seen it like a week ago, I can now go, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. <laughs> what? So it, it never quite can redeem itself. It just sort of, it's like it's just, it's just going through the motions of of the story that we all know. It's like it doesn't try and fill in or, or try and add anything extra to it. It just tries to go through the motions of, okay, she goes to the wizard now, she kills the witch, she goes back home again. That's what it felt like to me. Yeah, and um, I suppose the – and with the other one, the other really noticeable um, companion, I suppose you could say, with uh, with Toto. Oh, Toto yes. really just completely disappears for vast – parts of this movie and then you'll just see him run across the screen from time to time yeah <laughs> it just so, uh, so it, he only had a very he was only there two days a week when they were shooting so they had to use him when they could <laughs> well I, I think really i don't think toto was particularly well trained so they may have intended to to have toto appear in more of the scenes but they just weren't able to pull it off so they just basically kept him out back until they went oh hang on i haven't had toto for a while quick quick someone call him across did. the set <laughs> Oh, but gosh, but like, and I know, like we've touched on, yeah, the Emerald City scene, which happens next. But I, I, I don't know in terms of the whole. We were talking about being very racist in in, in the film itself, but I don't think anything can quite uh, exemplify that more than Eveline, the Wicked Witch of the West, in her scene being set in a sweatshop. Mm-hmm. Now, that whole, 
and you know, and the excruciatingly long song "A Brand New Day," which okay, we get the picture. It's a brand new day. <laughs> yeah, but um, well, which, which I actually funny. found I, I found her at the start of like the Evil Witch Evelyn song. I ever thought you know, it started off quite catchy, but yeah, it went on way, way too long. Yeah, and, then, and it kind uh, of had that sort of that, she had that Rita Franklin kind of. You thought, yeah, she's kind of coming into the the third act to try and save this show. Pity went too, too long, and then yeah, yeah the, the the brand new day, all the factory workers drip off to basically fairly skimpy, uh, you know, ones and two pieces. And even that could not help the length of that song. I mean, oh. it's all great to see nubile people in very little clothing jumping back and forth, but when it just keeps on going and going and going, you... It's probably not necessarily good if you're sitting there also with a group of kids expecting The Wizard of Oz. So <laughs> it's true, a bit of a hard... True. And, you know, and like, I must admit, I, lo- I love the fact that it's set in a sweatshop. Yeah, I love this, the shot of, um, you know, Eveline's sweatshop and the actual signs actually dripping with sweat. I thought that was kind of cute. You know, yeah. and there's a couple of little things they do, like the... the um, yeah, the, the what we're used to is the flying monkeys are these weird kind of cheetah-type weird things. Like, everyone seems to be wearing gimp masks. So I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> The, the, the motorcycling flying monkeys, yeah. <laughs> so at least they've tried to modernise it a bit, you know, um, um, scooting around a, um, a modern, I mean, a, um, a 70s New York. But, um, but yeah, I, I think they definitely took the whole, um, you know, be, becoming liberated and everything at the end quite literally by, you know, halfway through that brand new day. So I think about seven minutes in, they, you know, when they strip off all their clothes, it's like, yes, okay, we understand you, you're breaking free of, I don't know, it was trying to make a, a political statement, I think, as well. And I think it was mm. almost like, okay, we get the message. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, um, and, and I think um, Evelyn, as the Wicked Witch, uh, make, having her um, her demise in a toilet is quite appropriate, I thought. <laughs> appropriate? Yeah, it's also strangely anticlimactic. It just kind of happened. Yeah, it kind of just happened. It, but, and, and it even looked like it literally was, they've just got something from a stage show prop and just she falls into it and it goes like again this is showing the things that Sidney Lumet just he just wanted to film the movie in New York he, he didn't sort of it didn't there could have been so many more things he could have done with this film and that's another opportunity that was wasted speaking of, of wasted opportunities when they they get back and discover that the wizard actually I probably should mention when they first approached the wizard I, I don't know if it was with your copy as well but um they were going up in the lift to see the wizard, and then suddenly they were talking about having to go off to kill the Wicked Witch. Like, that first meeting with the wizard was completely missing from my copy. Oh, okay. Because, so, yeah, no, because... But that said, there was also, on my soundtrack copy, on that LP, there's a song called So You Wanted to See the Wizard, which is actually sung by... or sung or spoke spoken sung by um, Richard Pryor and that is actually around that period so it makes me wonder if the copy you've got has got that like it's been cut out like it's just it's a very they just haven't edited it very well so yeah mm. but I did also think that them going to see Eveline was very quick so it may have been what I saw as well <laughs> fair enough but then uh, coming back to Richard Pryor when they come in and, and they discover Richard Pryor behind the scenes of the wizard I mean, remembering what I remember about Richard Pryor, um, he, I was really expecting more. I, I, I actually, I think I actually gave myself an expectation of, of this meeting with Richard Pryor being this, you know, outrageous affair with him, you know, going full Richard Pryor, obviously in a, in a PG way. Uh, but no, he's just like, 
he's a lot like Dorothy, I suppose, in some ways, in the character, in that he's very, uh, very meek and very unassuming and, and very non-Richard Pryor. And, oh, well, it, it just seems like, it, it seems like they've just given him this cameo and he's just, just this bum, bub, bumbling mess throughout the whole thing and it just sort of um and like the like when they first walk in they go through the back entrance um to the emerald city after killing eveline and um so we, you know we assume richard Pryor is asleep and she's they've woken him up and all that but it just seems to happen so quickly there's no uh, i don't know all of a sudden she's just shouting at him and all these accusations there's no real build-up to sort of what has actually happened and yeah he didn't feel like yeah he could have really taken made this a really comedic role and and even with you know, um, even um, like in the original movie, how, you know, he then goes and goes, no, you've had your brain all along. Like, it doesn't even become that. It just goes into another boring musical number. And then she goes home. And it just sort of is a very wasted opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, she's the one who goes to the companions and says, oh, you, you're smart. You've got a heart. You're brave. And it's like, yeah, it took you long enough to realise it, genius. Um, and then, and then you know, she sings the very slow, soppy, over-the-long song. And um, I noticed, like, um, one thing I did find funny and actually did get a laugh out of me is when the good witch Glenda turns up and starts doing her song with some very, very scary gestures. I mean, this this woman was really going for it. Like, <laughs> oh, it actually reminded me of that scene out of the Star Wars Holiday Specials, you know, with Diane Carroll, where she's got that, you know, that there's that disco scene. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like something from a variety special from the 70s. But yeah, but um, the bit that made me laugh is she sings a bit about clicking the heels together three times, and she's holding up five fingers. <laughs> I actually didn't see that bit. I think I was just gobsmacked at the whole the whole song. but And, and the fact, too, that they've had to... Dorothy sings pretty much the same, I mean, this song, I Believe in Yourself, and then Lena Horne, the, the legendary Lena Horne, who I believe was, I think, the, his, um, Sidney Lumet's mother-in-law at the time, so that's why she got cast in the role. Mm-hmm. So she pretty much comes in and sings the exact same song that Diana Ross song, sings, and from the sounds of it, holds up five fingers. <laughs> she does, but at least that song was relatively short compared to the rest of the songs in this movie. And at least she gave it at least she gave it a bit of oomph that the movie needed. But honestly, after two hours and ten minutes that you're up to at this stage, you really don't care anymore. You just wanted to go home. Yeah, too little too late. And she actually noticed that she's saying goodbye to everyone, getting ready to go home. There's no sign of Toto. Again, you think at least, you know, the companion he'd be there so the companions could give him a pat. But yeah. um, I'm guessing she was carrying Toto at the end when she was running to the door, not that you could see it. Um, and then, it, yeah, it, it just ends. And yeah. yeah, and you're kind of like, well, maybe we've assumed that she's learnt her lessons or, or, or her life lessons from this experience. But I don't know, I think I'd just be creeped out and, and it kind of makes me want to stay away from subways. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'll be, if I ever go to the New York subway, I'll be checking the bins for teeth. Uh, but what I find hilarious is how the mum's wanting her to get out of get out of where they live, and I'm like, oh, I'm going after that experience. This woman will never leave the house again. Yep, yep. She she becomes even <laughs> more of a recluse because <laughs> there's no resolution at the end. Yeah, and um, so that's why, like, what I was saying before. It's like it was just going through the motions. Ah, uh, you guys know the story. He he's a film stage show. 
at the best of my ability. And unfortunately, yeah, we're, um, you know, there is rumours. You know how um, NBC do a live musical every year? Like, I think they did The Sound of Music a couple of years ago, and I think they did Grease. The next one that they're doing is The Wiz. So it'll be interesting to see them doing that. as a, a It's essentially a, it's a, a film stage show with Queen Latifah and a couple of other names. So mm-hmm. let's see if they're able to somewhat redeem it or and maybe maybe it can stand alone as a good musical away from the movie adaptation because i really think the film you know makes the work suffer a lot <laughs> yeah i think uh if uh if you've heard, ever heard of the whiz and i you know i'd be curious in seeing the stage show maybe even that nbc musical uh but um you know whether that can redeem it we will see but you know talking about redeeming maybe we should uh See if we found anything redeemable about it. Now, as per tradition, you did pick this movie, Christian, so I shall go first. And, um, I mean, within this song, there are some decent songs, or at least some that would be decent if they weren't so painfully long. It, it, it really did make the two-hour runtime seem even longer. So you'd hope that the good songs in a musical would be a redeeming feature, but there's just so few of them um it did make me start thinking about uh possible audience participation at the very least yelling dojo each time you saw him yeah because you'd only have to yell it twice <laughs> yeah. um the, the the you know i didn't mind the tin man I, I did find um nipsey russell as the tin man quite entertaining but the rest of the characters just ranged from Matt to god lion please just stop it um <laughs> I get the feeling it may have been a bit more impressive back in the 70s, but it, it hasn't aged well, let's face it. Um, and, um, you know, there was no closure at the end, so I guess that nothing in this movie mattered, which is pretty much my opinion of the entire movie anyway. So there's too many annoying and dull sequences, the songs are way, way too long, it's full of terrible, annoying characters, and just really run-of-the-mill performances by a lot of the people, and at the end of the day, it is not redeemable for me. Oh, not redeemable. Okay, Trevor, wow. Well, this has been, it's been a hard one for me to decide because I, I believe that through its... It, it's still an important movie in some way, even though I always seem to find some sort of importance with the film. But I think um, I think this is important because of who's involved with it and not what we're actually seeing on screen. So I think it is redeemable more for just just a couple of facts. Like I still I still believe it is a bad movie, I, and I feel bad even saying the word bad movie. But it it's it's not a very well made movie at all. There's so many things that could have that have gone wrong, but I believe that with the personnel involved, it should have actually been a lot better, but there's a lot of redeeming features, you know, when you look into it, like, you know, for Wizard of Oz purists, yeah, you can't go past at least seeing another interpretation, essentially a black exploitation version of the Wizard of Oz, I suppose, if you want to look at it like that. Michael Jackson fans, as I mentioned, it's his only feature film, so it's that already puts this film as a bit, makes it important, makes it a, a part of pop culture whether we like it or not and i know i don't really like it <laughs> that much so it's definitely like what you said trevor the, the songs are too long it, it's too long as a film it, it could have actually done with uh, someone going through with a whole heap of scissors and making it possibly an hour and a half movie but then i do wonder if 
it would still be the movie that it is. Like when I say that, I mean, would it still feel the way that it does? Would it actually improve on it? So I definitely believe the subway scene, if that was removed <laughs> already, it's it's getting more points from me. So if you're a fan of New York City, which I am, having never been there myself, it is good to be able to see some iconic parts of New York within it. But it's in Sydney LeMay's hands stick with dramas, you know, it just did not work as a movie musical. And I think this is one of those films that if people turned around and said that it was being remade, I would actually be genuinely interested and actually be in support of it because I think um, the musical has a lot of strong points, and um, but as a movie it just didn't work quite well. But it is redeemable for those couple of facts that it has um, Michael Jackson and, um, and these great um, Motown names attached to it. But yeah, I won't be rushing to watch it again anytime soon. <laughs> so, so as a historical artifact, it's redeemable. Is that what you say? Yeah. So I know it's a weird way of saying it. I just did not think saying non non redeemable. It did not feel right for me. I think this film is too an importance. Probably not even the word. It's 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 relevant. This movie, and I, I think it needs to be seen for those couple of facts, but not as a. <laughs> But as a movie, you're going to sit down on a Saturday night with or Saturday afternoon with your kids to watch. It's yeah, <laughs> it exists enough. for its time, and you can see why that the the, the black exploitation genre, you know, these the 70s African American films, The Wiz apparently was the last one of these films made, and and they say the reason the genre was killed off was because people, you know, this turned out so badly, and and, and people stayed away in droves. So you know, it it has impact whether it's good or bad. Fair enough. Well, I'm happy for it to be archived for people that want to research the era to have a look, as long as I never have to watch it again. Yeah, I promise I will not make you do it again, Trevor. <laughs> but you know what? Okay, I don't find it redeemable. You find it a uh, interesting piece of history. There are people out there that quite enjoyed this movie. I'll be interested to hear. <laughs> Again, we like different opinions, and certainly, no matter what our opinions are, I do try to end these on a high point. So, what we have here is a review, again, from Amazon, because that's the best place to find these things. Yep. And it goes by the title, Unbelievably Fun. Boo hiss to all the naysayers of the one and only whiz. A few of my friends got together at the DVD store the other night, and out of all the available titles, settled on this one, primarily for nostalgic reasons. Once we got home and popped it in, well, it was more than just simple sentimentality that carried us off to another world. This musical is awesome. The story is timeless, the songs are unforgettable, unforgettable, and the widescreen transfer is excellent. One only wishes for more goodies on the disc. I often scratch my head at why Sidney LeMay directed this, but knowing that he is one of the top five directors who ever understands New York City, it now makes perfect sense. The location shots are amazing, especially with the massive Albert Whitlock visuals, and as hard as it may be to watch Diana Ross play a 24-year-old single woman, she achieves it with simple gestures and that pure honey voice. It's a huge treat to watch this movie, and I look forward to repeat viewings. Five stars. I have a feeling they didn't watch the same movie that we did. <laughs> or maybe they had some drinks or something beforehand. <laughs> they had they had the non-subway scene director's cut or something. <laughs> Who knows? Even that wouldn't have made it better. 
But um, like I said, you know, we definitely are open to more opinions. So, of course, if uh, anybody out there has has, has an opinion on this, uh, well, I'll get to the contact details, but we certainly love to hear about that. So, in summary, uh, another one. We've had a few of these in the not-too-distant past um, where we've gone either side of the line, Christian. I know. We're gonna have, we might have to find something that changes that, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> have you got some juicy morsels for us to tackle for our next podcast? Funny you should ask that. <laughs> um, now, I, I did have a, a, a bit of a think about this. There are a few that I have in mind, and, and I was wondering whether or not to continue with the whole theme we seem to have at the moment of, of musicals and of uh, singers trying to make the transition to the big screen. So why not go for at least one more? Now we're going from 1978 to 2010, so quite a jump there. And the um, the musical that, uh, well, the musical movie that tried to bring Christina Aguilera to the big screen, I think we should watch Burlesque. Oh, Trevor. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I, I, I'll be honest. I have seen the film once or about when it came out, and I think it just kind of yeah, it was it was a movie to me. But I'll be really interested to watch it, um, knowing a bit more about burlesque now in general too, and um, and looking at it for redeeming features because I think I'll be able to find some some interesting things. <laughs> well, I've also got another surprise uh, relating to uh, burlesque, and I guess when we get together to talk about it. Um, first up, I was surprised it's rated 6.4. What I've heard about the movie, I thought that would be a lot lower. Uh, but, um, let's just say that I may also be calling on, uh, someone with a bit of expertise in the burlesque scene to help us go through this movie as well. So, uh, I'm looking at having a special guest for our next Redeeming Features cast. Oh, I can't wait, Trevor. Oh, it sounds great. So I don't know if I can't wait to watch Burlesque, but I can't wait for our conversation. Fantastic. So, um, and of course, anybody out there, if uh, if you have your opinion on the Wiz, do you think we're, we were too harsh? Do you think we were too generous? Do, we, do you have some Redeeming Features we may have missed? Let us know. And of course, if you want to uh, have your say about burlesque, we also would love to hear that as well. Uh, as always, it's very easy to find the Rufus Project on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, you can also send us an email to the Rufus Project at gmail.com or head to the Rufus and leave comments below this very, very episode. Okay, we make it easy for you guys. Make use of it. Oh, I can't wait to see if we get any feedback about The Wiz and um, for anyone who's going to also tackle burlesque like we will be. <laughs> mm-hmm. Should be. Should be quite an experience. For sure. I look forward to it, Trevor. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Christian. Bye. <laughs> So bad it's good. What's this movie? Do you think we should? It's got bad. I love dodgy creatures, but we want to know what the redeeming features. Boy, oh boy. Chris J. 
Sergeant and Trevor on the case. Watching movies from all over the place. I'm the B, says it's bad, but we want to know if it's fun to be had. Boy? Oh, boy. Good evening, teachers. 